Welcome to the RPGBot.News. I'm Randall James, and I've stolen Tyler's basement. <laughs> With me is Tyler Campstra. How are you in my basement? <laughs> <laughs> Just don't don't look over here. That's all. And Ash Eli. Hello, servants of the Dragon Queen. Here's your spear. Now get in line. Good. It's Lance. It's Lance. Lance, right. my bad. My, my mistake. There's no, Lance, wait, no, Lance kills the dragons. We don't want to give you a Lance. We want to give uh, you a spear. Or a pike. Okay. Um, we'll give them spears. We call it Lances. Confuse everybody. Tyler, what's yeah. happening tonight? <laughs> well, we're going to talk about Dragonlance. Dragonlance Shadow of the Dragon Queen uh, has just released. Uh, we've got our hands on it. And yeah, we're going to talk about what's in it, what we like, what we don't. And, you know, generally what's cool so for those of you who are not familiar with the Dragonlance setting it's a setting that was made back in the 80s it is very 80s <laughs> it's a kind of a, a classics it's it's up there with um uh forgotten realms is one of the og like classic D games uh settings along with greyhawk but uh essentially the world has been ruled pretty directly by three three main gods Paladine, who is the god of goodness. You might know him as Bahamut, the platinum dragon. He's known as Bahamut in other settings. And there's Gillian, who is the god of neutrality. And uh, last but not least, there is Tuck. I'm going to mispronounce this. There's no... I don't, I don't know. I, I apologize to anybody who corrects me. I've been saying Takahesis. I don't know if that's right. Maybe it's Takahesis. I don't think that's right, but I'm going to say Takhesis. Takhesis, uh, who is the um, uh, the the uh, titular dragon queen. Um, she's known also as Tiamat from regular uh, D&D. But uh, they take a more active role. And basically the book sets up as to what the what the world is kind what the setting of this book is which is the world of Kryn. and the main events that you have to keep in mind are what is known as the third dragon war which it was a great war between the forces of good and the forces of takesis takesis lost and she was banished from the world along with all of her dragons the it in order to maintain the balance the metallic dragons also went into hiding uh, you see that a lot in Kryn, this sort of idea of the balance between good and evil. How when one side gains uh, a, a significant advantage, the other side needs to come in to sort of balance it out. And there are neutral, there are neutral groups that actively contribute to this balance. So if, good, if things are too good for a while, they'll assist the tides of darkness. If things are looking really bad for the tides, they'll assist the, the forces of good. But yeah, so that was the first major event in the world of Kryn. The second one was the Cataclysm, which is basically basically a sort of ground zero for everything that is happening in the current setting. The Cataclysm was basically an idea of, and then man grew proud. This uh, sort of like the Atlantis. And it's sort of, the thing that I like about it is sort of like a deconstruction of what would happen if the good guys were just in charge and they took their good ideals and their and their ideas for the name of good in the name of goodness to the extreme? So there was this. The, to make a long story short, there was this a uh, this eternal empire called Istar, which was controlled by the king priests, which were the theocratic uh, sort of ruling body of Istar. And one of the king priests thought, "Hey, 
let's keep take this goodness on the road. I want to be a god so that I can enforce my goodness on everybody. And the gods basically said, uh, tried to tell him, hey, this is a really bad, bad idea. You should not do this. And sent him 13 different signs that what he was doing was a bad idea and he should stop. But he didn't listen. And so the gods were like, okay. And destroyed most of the world. Like they, they completely reshaped everything. Sunk Istar. It's now like a red swirling maelstrom. And... The landscape has just been completely changed and rewritten, and the gods abandoned Kryn. Okay, but in in uh, this fellow's defense, I think one of those signs was that the trees were bleeding. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, I love maple syrup, personally. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean... I mean, a bleeding tree could mean anything. Yeah, yeah. honestly. Yeah. There were other signs... Um, could mean uh, waffles. <laughs> like, were, were three of the signs no stop and don't <laughs> no i mean they were more esoteric than that like it was like no, the, the trees were bleeding the water turned red with blood and he dismissed them all as like evil the work of evil mm-hmm. so the gods tried to get some of their faithful to go and warn him but it failed for one reason or another the most infamous is lord soth who is one of the more infamous um villains in classic D. he's like the archetypal death knight before he was a death knight he was uh he was a knight of the of uh, Salamnia, which uh, is a really respected knight organization. He was what is called well, the knight were. of the. They were, um, <laughs> uh, they really respected knight. They were a really respected knight organization. He was part of the Knights of the Rose, which serve Paladine, and he was kind of a messed up individual. He cheated on his wife, had a secret affair with an elven woman. Uh, when his wife gave birth, he. The child was so ugly that he killed them both. So great guy. Um, (laughs) But he wanted to seek redemption. And the gods said, okay, you want redemption, buddy? Go tell the king of Istar that what he's doing is bad. And so he went to go do that. And some elven woman said, hey, your new wife is cheating on you. And he's like, well, I can't have that. So he left. And because of him, the world is over. So great job there, buddy. (laughs) Great legacy. Nah. Okay. Actually, honestly, though, uh, for the DMs and GMs out there at home, that that fits perfectly, right? Like, oh, we were on a quest to save the world. Nah, I've got a nah. personal vendetta. I've got to go deal with it. It, it does. <laughs> it does scream like the classic D and D group who are just like, I know the fight is over there, but um, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and there's also there's a little bit of meta here, like stepping out of the setting. So Lord Soth, even within D and D history, has a little bit of controversy. Uh, he appeared in Ravenloft mm-hmm. early on. Um, although the what's the right way to put it? The original authors who described Lord Soth didn't condone that it wasn't something that they endorsed so they eventually wrote a book where it's like nah i never went there i don't know what you're talking about so like according to D canon like he was just returned to the world of of kryn at the moment that he disappeared and like oh yeah no he wouldn't have the ravenloft adventures but also whatever whatever the authors of this say go to yeah i mean <laughs> soth is like almost singularly responsible for two different end of the world scenarios um the first is obviously the cataclysm and the second one was when he again got jealous of this this woman he was working for uh kitiana who works for the dragon queen he got jealous of her like he's he the guy is kind of a creepy guy but he was obsessed with her uh because she was flirting with another guy and that guy and like he pitted them against each other and because of that they both died 
and that guy was supposed to stop the apocalypse. So somebody oh, had to geez. go back in time and prevent that from happening. So <laughs> good job, Lord <laughs> Soth. You played yourself twice. But anyway, at, at that point, it's probably worth highlighting too. Like, you know, these were the stories of the day. You know, that content mm-hmm. isn't what is in this book. Yeah, no, it, they really kind of scrubbed some of that. Like they don't, they don't um, go too into depth about Lord Soth. Like he, they d- do say that um, he. I think they mentioned that they end. He ended up murdering his wife, but they don't say how um, or that it was. Um, but yeah, it's like there were, there are a lot of problematic elements with Lord Soth in the original content that yeah. probably <laughs> best that they rescrubbed him a bit. Yeah, so it's the it's the modern kinder gentler terrible so- person. <laughs> Still an evil bastard, but just not a problematic evil bastard. <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to ask a real, I'm going to ask a real quick setting question because uh, Ash, you said the gods abandoned the setting. Yes. yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Are there are there still clerics? Is that there still a thing? are, but what they worship, it, it isn't a religion anymore. They make up. They basically have come up with their own sort of religions. They don't get power anymore. But, Interesting. But the re, in recent events, the book describes how the gods are slowly coming back into the world, and their influence is coming back. Um, and one uh, of the okay. one of the beginning parts of the adventure that's not really a spoiler, but it's sort of like if you're a cleric, it sort of describes how you get your actual godly powers um so the gods are slowly coming back because it's revealed and this isn't a spoiler either because it's right in the front of the book and it's kind of the the reason why the book is here uh Tachesis is also coming back um she Hooray. basically manipulated <laughs> events in that she has uh one of the old uh gates of istar um she repurposed into a portal that she can use but the one of the keystones was damaged and lost, so she can only influence events from far away as of right now. But her her dragon armies are hoping to change that. Yeah, I mean, it, it really feels to me like th- this idea of the setting, the source material. If you look at all the novels, the idea is that the gods have abandoned us, that we don't have all of the abilities, and at this point, people are you know they're distrustful of the Knights of Salamnia. Mm-hmm. They're distrustful of people who hold to the old gods, because why would you do that? They abandoned us, um, and 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 so th- this idea that oh well the gods are sneaking back and a little bit of their influence is coming back. I mean, bluntly, I think it is good narrative. I think it works. It also feels like a reason to say, okay, look, we're not going to ban clerics and paladins from the setting. I think so. Uh, what what I would say also, like if you wanted to play with it a little bit, um, I think. There are ways that you can make a world that has clerics that don't have gods in it. You could just be, uh, and something I've done because I like to play with gods where it's like, it's not really clear if they actually exist or not, or if they're just, it's just people's belief. Cause I don't really like gods directly interfering in mortal plans because then why don't the gods just solve everything? <laughs> you can play it up as a person's belief or faith is where they draw power. Whether that belief or faith is true or not can be left kind of ambiguous. But I think that if you, if you're like, I don't, I like the idea of gods being absent. I don't really want gods coming back. Like, I feel like that's something if you want to run a, uh, a game in this setting, that's something you could probably play with. No, that makes sense. Okay. So there's one organization I feel like we haven't hit yet. Uh, so the let's do of this. Sorcery. Nailed it. All right. Tell us about it. <laughs> Well, they're all wizards, so they're all the best. 
the they're wizard sorcerers and warlocks is what the book describes. The mages of high sorcery are a highly respected but also mistrusted organization, and they gain their magic not th- partially through study but mostly through the gods of magic, uh, which um, uh, Solanari, uh, Lunatari, and Nuitari. Uh, Solanari is uh, um, yeah, Solanari is the white moon. Uh, Lunatari is the red moon, and Nuatari is the black moon. Three moons, people. Three moons. Three moons. <laughs> these these three different gods give magic to their followers, and that corresponds with the three different orders of the mage uh, hi, mages of high sorcery, which are the white robes, the red robes, and the black robes, which are good aligned mages. Red, uh, neutral aligned, not red aligned, uh, neutral aligned <laughs> uh, mages and uh, evil aligned. Now, the thing that's interesting about that is people are like, why are evil aligned mages in this organization? They all work together. Um, it, to, uh, and they, their priorities are just different. So for a white mage, their priorities firstly to people and making sure that magic advances and protects humanity. And secondly, to themselves. Uh, then the red mages kind of shift back and forth. They're mostly concerned with like advancing knowledge and power and magic for its own sake. But the black mages, um, they are very self-serving. They, the way they, the book describes it is they think about their own interests first, the interests of the concla- uh, the interests of their sect second, and the interests of the conclave of mages third. But they all have a say in how the mage society is run. There used to be, there also used to be five different towers of sorcery where mages would go to study and learn and take their trials to be admitted into the order. Now there's only one, which is the uh, Tower of Weyrith, which is the headquarters of the mage of high, the mages of high uh, sorcery. I always want to say mages of high society, which feels different, <laughs> but. I'm pretty sure it's just bards, right? Yeah, just bards. But um, yeah, the mages are very interesting. They they have a lot of uh, say and uh, in politics and stuff like that. And one of the really interesting things about Dragonlance that I think is really cool is one of the major events that happens quite consistently is the, uh, the Night of the Eye, which is when the moons are the three moons are in alignment, and it's when mages power becomes really powerful and the reason it's called the night of the eye is because when the moons are together they form an eye it looks like an eye the white moon forms like the um the scalera the red moon the iris and the black moon the the poop the the pupil (laughs) (laughs) i can't speak okay (laughs) clearly that is my problem as far as uh some current events are going so obviously uh the takesis is back and she's been raising an army. And the ways that she's been doing that is she immediately stole the metal- a bunch of metallic dragon eggs and basically said to the metallic dragons, hey, I'm going to conquer Kryn. Stay out of it or your kids get it. <laughs> and the metallic dragons were like, okay, we won't okay. get involved. But Wait, Okay, so there's a deal. They have a deal then. So they have a deal. She's going to watch after the eggs and make sure nothing bad happens to the eggs in exchange. The metallic dragons are going to stay out of it. That was the deal. Yes, that was okay, the deal. So that worked out, right? Everybody. No, everybody. she immediately broke it. She, she immediately, this? who would have thought a uh, curse, your sudden, but inevitable betrayal. Uh, <laughs> so she, um, 
she taught her followers how to corrupt the metallic dragon eggs. And the spawns of these dragon eggs are what are called draconians. They're not like dragonborn. They are a little bit like dragonborn, but they're different. And they come in different different varieties uh which we can go into later but uh they're basically they're basically kind of like dragonborn but they have wings not all of them have wings but most of them do and each of them forms a different niche so like brass dragons are the lowest tier. they're shock troops and stuff they can't even fly and then you have the gold dragon uh spawns which are called oryx who uh, are basically like the generals of her army. They're very cunning and uh, powerful. Like their their breath attack weapon is no joke. <laughs> like mm-hmm. we're not talking dragonborn breath. We're talking almost a full dragon dragon breath. And wow. they, the trade off is, is that they don't have any wings. Yes, the Draconians are a really cool force. They're kind of what I've the, the comparison that's been made is they're Kryn's version of orcs. If uh, Tachesis is the trend version of Sauron, then the Draconians are her orcs, essentially. That makes okay. sense. Do I get so, to play one of these? No. Ah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that would be cool, though. I think it would be interesting if uh, sort of like a Eberron situation where uh, things that were designed for war suddenly decide they don't want to be used for war anymore. Mm. and turn back to the side of good or maybe another thing you could do if you wanted to get creative uh which i think there's precedent for in the novel is uh good people stealing chromatic dragon eggs and turning them into good aligned draconians um which could be interesting Hmm. yeah and and the the problem the description in the text is that you really should not think of these as individuals no. They are a magical essence that only exist to advance the Dragon Queen's desires. Yeah, They're not yeah. individuals. They are part of the hive. And, and, and so with that, you, you wouldn't expect to say, oh, okay, but I'm going to be a player character and I'm going to have my own ambition. No, they're really meant to be just foot soldiers. Yeah, that's kind of their whole deal. I mean, if you look at the draconian stat block like pretty much all of them have what's called draconic further fervor which is described as whenever a, an actual dragon is around they go go into a frenzy um and are whipped up and that's sort of like the hive mind sort of situation they are able to individually act like especially some of the other uh, like the copper dragon ones who are basically sent out as assassins and they're very scary um uh, uh or the silver ones which are uh, also very scary that the only large size draconian and they you, if you get into a fight with one they'll probably steal your skin if they kill you <laughs> they'll like ah. they'll turn into you and it's they use like terror and intimidation and uh psycho psychological warfare to mess with their enemies so yeah. these are not good guys by any yeah. sense of the word <laughs> that is terrifying you're right mm. yeah all right. So I think at, at that point, it is worth talking about what are the new player options? Yeah. Well, let me tell you about the single most exciting race ever published in D&D, the Kender. I love Kender. <laughs> I my exposure to the Kender until now has been extremely limited, and I have never read anything positive about them. People uh, are wrong. Kenders are awesome. Shut up. <laughs> uh, 
the the most polite way I can describe their previous depictions as I understand them is they are an offshoot of gnomes that as a race has no concept of private property, which leads <laughs> to shenanigans. Yep. So so like people people say that like in Dragonlance they're viewed as as the world's children and they're looked upon favorably, but like angry nerds on the internet look at them and are like wait a minute no these these are this is a destructive force that just like moves in and you can't do anything about it and they just take your stuff and they're like eh, no such thing as private property man so, so that flavor has been scrubbed away a great deal uh now they're described in all of three very short paragraphs as an offshoot of gnomes uh, that have a natural born curiosity they like to explore and learn things and collect things and people generally like them and that's pretty much all we get flavor wise mechanically though uh their their signature racial trait is you can insult someone in combat as a bonus action to the point that they get disadvantaged to attack anyone except you and i love that yeah something great about uh the way that kenders are put uh put in uh this particular book is they have an npc stat block of kender and what's great about that is they come with a little table of insults <laughs> that you can it's <laughs> wonderful there's I only missed that there's four of them so i'm gonna read ah. them because they're great uh should i pretend to be scared you seem like you really need this <laughs> oh. um I wish I could be like you and just not care how I look or smell or dress. So brave. <laughs> this one's my favorite. Did the cataclysm have a face? Because I think you might be twins. <laughs> and then uh, energetically points at their foe with both hands and loudly repeats the word bonk. Bonk? <laughs> just bonk. Well, <laughs> bonk. Okay. Bonk. Bonk. <laughs> all right the fourth or fifth time you'd be, you'd be over it <laughs> yeah uh, all right i'll buy it yeah i just love <laughs> so, the idea of 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 a uh, kender just going up to a stern draconian going bonk 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 it's like stop that uh, stop it <laughs> i will destroy you <laughs> <laughs> well that's kender <laughs> yep <laughs> so we we also got the new lunar sorcery subclass for the sorcerer um it it's got some cool mechanics you switch between phases of the moon it's got lots of buttons to push and you can it it has the additional spells known that um aberrant mind and clockwork soul got but you can switch between the spells depending on which phase of the moon you're using it's got cool buttons to push it's pretty strong i don't think it's super game breaking like the stuff it has looks and feels very satisfying, but it's not going to like shatter your game or anything. So you would let it outside the setting. Yeah, definitely. Okay. I might do the same with Kender. Like the mechanics there are actually pretty solid. Um, I don't know what I do flavor wise outside of Dragonlance for the Kender, but yeah, mechanically they're fine. Uh, now some things that we might not let out of the setting. Let's talk about backgrounds and feats. Yes. Yeah, so people might remember our Unearthed Arcana episode where we discussed the Heroes of Kryn UA. And that document introduced 
essentially bonus feats that you get at first and fourth levels specifically for characters in this adventure Um, and at the time everyone's like whoa this is a lot of power creep and they're not wrong Uh, but they kept that mechanic so the bonus feats at levels one and four are still a thing the list of feats is pretty close to what it was in the second round of dragonlance unearthed arcana uh, the the mechanics of the feats themselves have changed, but the specific, like, here's the feats you can take at each step is pretty much the same. So at first level, you're going to get Initiative High Sorcery, Initiative of the uh, Knights of Salomnia, I'm forgetting the na- exact name of the feat, or you could take Skilled or Tough. So, like, even if you don't want to buy into one of those two factions, like Skilled and Tough, you can put on basically any character and make them pretty useful. There are seven new feats. Seven? Nine. Uh, there are I nine new nine, feats. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I wasn't counting the initiative, whatever. Um, there are nine new feats. Uh, only one of them isn't tied to the factions, and it's uh, favored of the gods. Divinely favored, yeah. Every one of these feats has the Dragonlance campaign setting as a prerequisite for the feat, so... Like we we had the issue with Strixhaven where the Strixhaven initiate background gave you a feat that gave you extra spells, which was super powerful for a lot of spellcasters. And like my personal advice has always been like, this is clearly intended for that campaign. So don't use it anywhere else without guardrails. And here they've clearly learned from that. Like, okay, yes, this is this would cause problems in a typical campaign because it is just a straight jump in power for the player characters so we're going to limit this specifically to this setting and just expect like this is the baseline rules for games in dragonlance um so we we talked about the uh most of the feats are tied to this the uh different factions so we have the initiative high sorcery and then three feats based off of that and then uh squire of salomnia and then three feats based off of that and like the feats are tied to the three different varieties of wizards and or sorry high sorcerers whatever and then the three orders of knights and each of them has like cool thematic benefits some of them are really really strong actually they look like really satisfying to play with like uh randall i can see in our show notes you flagged a couple of favorites yeah no absolutely so uh i want to call out kind of two opposites protective ward and live channel uh i think these are both really powerful so protective ward sack a spell slot roll a number of d6s equal to the the level of that spell slot and stop this much damage so as as a reaction uh, somebody on the team is being attacked. I sack a second level spell. I roll two d six and I block up to that much damage. If you're running a campaign, if you're a if your DM or GM allows you to take rest to the point where you typically don't exhaust all your spell slots, and you as a, a player character don't get to use your reactions all the time, this is awesome. <laughs> yeah, you know. So yeah. I, um... It, it feels kind of expensive, but yeah, you're right. If if you're uh, doing a good job managing your spell slots, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, and I think if anything, this might be the thing that kind of convinces your your DM to force you to manage your spell slots because otherwise, like this is neutralizing. So I think it it it, <laughs> it would it, in a way it would actually kind of coach everybody to say, okay, look, we can't just keep burning through these things because otherwise, you know, what was already a very powerful group of classes are just going to become that much more powerful. On the flip side, I, I want to talk about live channel. 
So with with Life Channel, when a creature you can see within 60 feet of you fails a saving throw, you can expend hit die up to the level of the spell, roll those hit die, add them together, and add that damage. Now, I wonder if they intended for your constitution bonus to be added to that. I think it's just, it's the, hit, I think it's just the hit die. Just um, the die? Okay. Yeah. Uh, that feels otherwise, safer. Otherwise, yeah. yeah, otherwise that would be a lot. Um, but yeah. for those of you who are listening to what Randall's saying, they're like, those are really good. I'm going to take those. Keep in mind that uh, each of these, th- each of those two feats require you to be part of a specific uh, sect of the Mage of High Sorcery. Especially yeah. um, if your DM is following the campaign, you might not be a Mage of High Sorcery at the start of the game. Uh, so you'll have to work your way to those feats. And also, there. Um, keep in mind, so like the one that Randall just described at the Life Channel, you're going to be a black robe if you're taking that. So yeah. you have to ask yourself, am I okay with being an evil-aligned caster or at best a neutral aligned caster with some evil tendencies um because you don't have to necessarily be evil to be a black robe but it certainly helps <laughs> i mean let's keep track of what we're talking about we're talking about we're kind of burning our own life force to inflict damage on others yeah and that's, that's uh that's an evil act and so uh i i mean i personally am not opposed to players playing an evil character in a party that is good aligned colby does it all the time uh, but the reason why I let them do it is because they're very good at it and they do it in a way that is not disruptive to the rest of the party. And so if you are comfortable with that and you think that you can manage that, then yeah, go for it. But just keep that in mind, something to... No, it makes sense. So just to super quickly hit on the martial feats, because we won't beat them all to death, but the uh, the martial feats give martial characters some cool new buttons to press. Two of the three use your bonus action, and then the uh, Squire of Salomnia feat gives you a cool like damage boost thing you can use a few times per day. They feel very satisfying on pretty much any martial character. The, the UA ones all used expertise dice, so like you'd get to use them once per short rest, and then you're done unless you're a battle master and then you're like yes more dice please but yeah these ones you can throw on pretty much any martial character and they'll feel really good awesome so let, let's talk about the adventure uh let's hit some of the the high notes here wait uh there's more there's an ad break yes <laughs> and we're back all right Boy, i lanced so many dragons during that ad break yep. just all of them all of them. Okay. Uh, so some basics about the adventure. One of the cool things, and we'll talk more about in a second, there's this idea of preludes to bring individual characters or smaller groups of characters into the party and kind of set them up. It tends to be, you know, each of these tend to be specific towards what class that character is playing. It's meant to bring everybody together. I really liked it. We'll go and we'll talk a little bit more about it in a second. The idea is you run that with a level one character at the end of the prelude. Congratulations, you're level two. So the heart of the adventure runs from level 2 to level 11 uh, using milestone leveling. At the beginning of every, cha- every chapter, there's kind of a running the chapter section where in each there's a, and hey, let's talk about character advancement. Here are the places where your characters are going to advance in the level. Or in, in, in one of the chapters, for instance, there's a couple different options. So it says, hey, pick two of these three, pick when it makes sense for your players. That's interesting. So they're milestone leveling, but in a couple of cases, it's like you pick the milestone. Exactly. Uh, and, and one of them, for instance, like is that. there can be an exceptional outcome, but that exceptional outcome isn't guaranteed. So it's recommended, hey, if they get this exceptional outcome, that is a good place to give a level 
But if you give a level here, you're actually not going to give a level a little bit further down the chapter. And the players will never know the difference. Exactly. Yeah, I actually, I I liked the preludes. I thought that the preludes were cool, and it's a thing I want to see more of. Uh, I think that uh, we don't have a lot of, it, it feels kind of like a session zero type of thing. Uh, something that you can do solo with players. Um, and I like to, if I had a complaint about it, I would say there weren't enough. I want more uh, because yeah. I feel like because there was one that was geared towards uh, mages like join be, be, like the whole through line is joining the mages of high sorcery and there's one for like divine uh, divine uh, inclined players like cleric, cleric paladins, paladins. Spells and stuff like that and then there's a catch all one for just everybody so that's only three so like I w- if I'm gonna do this I want it feels weird to just do like a solo session with one player and then do a group session with like three players. I don't know. But, that feels weird to me, but I, mean, they, I I get why they did it. Yeah, they they gave this description of the idea that like you could have somebody who isn't a caster come to the caster's prelude with them. Yeah, uh, as as almost a guest, as long as there has to be at least one caster. I think similarly, like you could have somebody else be at the camp at that with that cleric or that paladin have the experience with them, and so they kind of get sucked into it. Um, I think what that's doing is it's in, in that case, it's highlighting that cleric or paladin, putting them in the spotlight for the prelude, similarly highlighting that caster. Um, and then if, yeah, if you've got a group of marshals, uh, you know, they're going to, there is a prelude for them and cool. It's going to suck you into the adventure and you're ready to party. Yeah. One of the things I want to comment for these is they feel brief, but appropriate, you know, still an appropriate length. Like I bet if you had an experienced player, you could roll through this in like 30 minutes. If you had an inexperienced player, so you were also teaching how to play the game at the same time, I still bet you'd be done with it in an hour. Yeah, and I, I do agree. Like It does say that you can bring in uh, people from uh, as a guest, but th- that's... Uh... That's the that that that's the one thing that feels off to me is like you're still making that one player a focus, and while there is that catch all for the other martial characters, chances are that one person is not one person is not going to be the focus. It's going to be like more of a group catch all. So no, so it's like one player has a focus in their own prelude, but the other players don't get to have their solo focus. So that's that's the one criticism I have is that it feels like. If they were going to do this, they should at least do like maybe five um, because that's a pretty typical party size. But uh, it's still a great idea. And I think you could probably come up with your own. Um, And the thing that's also good about this is that the preludes are followed up throughout the adventure. Like the Mage of High Sorcery, the the prelude doesn't end with you being part of the Mage of High Sorcery. Spoiler. But like uh, it's followed through through the rest of the adventure. I'm not going to spoil how that works out. But yeah, I thought that was cool. So how many of these preludes were in the book? Three. Three, okay. Yeah, so a party of four or more, you're going to have to double up. Yeah. Yeah, and and I think even, right, if, if you had like a cleric and a paladin both in the party, it probably makes sense to just run them together. Yeah. Because uh, otherwise, like, you know, they get together later and it's like, oh, you had the same experience at the same campground? That's weird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's kind of what the book recommends. Uh, like, there's stipulations for mages doing it together there's stipulations for clerics and paladins doing it together and there's stipulations for the anybody else doing the last one together peasants if you peasants will. yes you are not casters <laughs> go away you don't get special treatment you get go investigate this yes <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> All right, so so you go through the preludes. They spit you out at level two. You're ready for this adventure. Uh, it, you guys mentioned Takesis, Takosis, whatever. Takahesis. T Matt's back. Yes. Taco adhesis. Uh, <laughs> I could go for a taco right now. Are you kidding me? Yeah, I'm do that to you right now. now right? Not too. Thanks, well, you're Tyler. in you're in Taco Land. You can get tacos. I can. That's There's true. a taco truck right around the corner. Oh, I'm jealous. Just I know you truck. are. Yep. Just park. <laughs> hey, I got snow cones outside. How about that? <laughs> Not jealous. <laughs> okay, that's fair. That's fair. Team, it's back. Team, it's back. Okay, so team, it's back. Um, uh, we don't want to do spoilers. We want to leave the adventure open for folks to play. I, I want to highlight a mechanic they engage in that, that I think is really cool. So the idea, you know, like they described a moment ago, um, we have these draconians. There are dragon armies. Bad things are happening, and it'd be really cool if you save the world. I, I think that's enough to highlight it. A cool mechanic they engaged in. So they also have a board game com- coming out called Dragonlance Warriors of Kryn. The board game. At certain points in the adventure, you know, be- because in the adventure, it's like, oh, okay, and there's going to be a battle. Uh, but when the battle happens, what if your, what if the party goes somewhere else where there isn't a battle and you work on some key <laughs> things? Like, we need you to infiltrate this thing because this is D&D and not a war game. Okay. But they point out, now would be a good time. Why don't you go over to Dragonlance Warriors of Kryn and play the war game and have that mass combat experience? I see what you did there, Watsy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I've, I have read many takes on how to run war in D&D, like Heroes of Battle in 3rd Edition. MCDMs, Kingdoms and Warfarers sitting uh sitting on my digital shelf waiting to be read. Haven't gotten to that one yet, but it's very difficult to do mass combat in D&D because creatures are generally more complex than I have a spear and I'm going to poke the guy next to me. It's like you throw draconians in there, I'm like they've got breath weapons that have to recharge and some of them can fly and there's dragons and there's wizards and like it it gets really really complicated and then you have the issue of power scale where it's like okay you're a level 10 fighter you're functionally a superhero and you're fighting a squad of 10 like just regular dudes with spears man like do we even need to roll initiative they're just gonna lay down almost seems like a great topic for a future episode boy sure does So, yeah, sometimes the answer is just like, yeah, the players need to go do something more important than throw their bodies around on a battlefield. So you don't get that like like Avengers style big fight scene where you're like the superhero in the middle of a war. All right, I'm fine with that. But they do give you an outlet for it. And that's kind of a cool yeah. like optional complexity of saying like, hey, let's mix it up this session. We're actually going to go play this other game, which is still tying the adventure and it's giving us a different experience. I, I do actually think that was pretty clever of them to structure it. And because it's Dragonlance, like I think if if they just came up with a new setting and said, oh, we're going to do this thing and we're going to at launch, not only do we want you to buy the source material for the adventure, we also want you to buy a board game to go with it. Everybody would be like, pound sand wizards, we're not doing that. <laughs> because it's Dragonlance, I, I bet they are going to get some engagement and maybe build some trust to do this in the future. Who knows? Somehow D and D is actually going to turn back into war games and like just full circle, <laughs> full circle. <laughs> so I think it's it's worth let's hop into kind of what were our thoughts on the book. 
Ash, I know you didn't really have an opinion on this, so maybe we'll just cut. We can do me last. You guys go first. Probably for the best. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so I have almost no exposure to Dragonlance going into this. So like this is all fresh material for me. The setting seems like fine, run-of-the-mill kind of high fantasy stuff. Uh, I like that the world feels like it has an interesting history to draw from. Um, I like that the roster of deities is intentionally small, like Forgotten Realms, a lot of other settings. It's like, okay, as things go on, they keep adding more deities for more and more niche things. Like, this is the dwarven deity of left shoes. It's like, I don't... don't need that man (laughs) (laughs) so the the number of gods feels good their domains like there's nothing super shocking there but they all all seem fine um like this feels like a good baseline DD setting to me the character options all seem good without being problematic i like that they like they fenced off all of the the power creep to specifically this one setting and they're like no we've, we've built this adventure knowing that you're going to use these options i'm sure there are people that would be like yeah we're just going to use that rule forever now and like one D is kind kind of going that way anyway I personally didn't read the adventure because I'm hoping I can talk Randall into running it for our two stake groups. I didn't want to spoil it for myself, but like the monsters looked cool. The character options looked good without being problematic. And yeah, like I said, settings seem pretty good. All right, Ash. Oh, you want to do me now? Yeah. (laughs) Okay. I'm probably going to get a lot of pushback from this. I was very disappointed by this book. Um, I, I am somewhat familiar with Dragonlance. Somewhat. Uh, And even if I wasn't, I feel <laughs> somewhat, yes. Um, I Even if I wasn't, I feel like I would still be kind of let down by this book. Uh, I didn't read the adventure, so I can't comment on that. I'm sure the adventure is good. But that's not what I came here for. I came here for a setting. And I didn't really get that. I, uh, Tyler said that uh, the setting seems cool. Yeah, it does seem cool, but it doesn't go into a lot of detail about the setting it gives you like in recent events like recent important events it gives you four like recent important events and the entire world building and setting is relegated to a single chapter that took me a half an hour to read that to me is unacceptable i expected more from wizards of the coast um and it felt kind of like a letdown because i would get to the end and I'd be like that that's it that's it and the the other frustrating thing was that oftentimes it would allude to like lord soth or the city of calendan in the world building section and be like if you want more detail on this go look at the adventure that's not what i'm here for i'm here for the setting <laughs> and the problem the problem is is like when you're releasing a setting book like this that's great that you have an adventure. I'm sure the, and based on what Randall has described, the adventure sounds really cool. It sounds really in depth. That's awesome. I love that. Uh, I'm not knocking on that. My problem is, is that if I want to run a game that's not that adventure, I can't using just this book. I have to do other research because it literally doesn't give you much to work with. It, do, it doesn't give you like towns except for Kalimdan. It gives you like a paragraph on the region surrounding Kalimdan and that's it. It even only gives you like a brief summary of the gods. Um, and that feels not good. I think if you're going to build a setting 
the the one that I would look to is Eberron Rising from the Last War. That is the gold standard of how to do a setting. It's great. It goes into detail of all the different like nations, their history. It gives you cities to work with. It gives you like like little um, story hook ideas. That's awesome. I want that. And that's the thing is like if they wanted to make an adventure, that's fine. Make an adventure book. But that's not what this was sold as. This was sold as a setting book. And I think Watsi's kind of shooting themselves in the foot because why wouldn't you just release the setting book? And then release the adventure book. You'd make double the money, and then it, things wouldn't feel as stripped down. And it's it's just going back to my recent frustrations with Wizards of the Coast lately. Since Spelljammer, it feels like the cadence that people have said is well. The beauty of Fifth Edition is that a lot of it is left over to DM Fiat. Like you are left to your own devices to sort of figure out, and are encouraged to come up and build the world yourself. That that's an excuse that I don't like, and it's got to stop. DM Fiat is not an excuse for lazy game design. Uh, so it's fine if you want to leave things to the DM. That's fine. But then why are you writing the book? And uh, coming from Chaosium, I've been reading a lot of Chaosium and reviewing. I don't know if you've seen them on this website, but uh, sorry, this is Asher's soapbox right now. <laughs> but on Chaosium. <laughs> Uh, they, the Chaosium has been killing it lately with these adventure books and setting books. Like they recently released Regency Cthulhu, where they go into detail about all of the different setting information, the recent timeline, how the culture works. It gives you a town to work with. It gives you story ideas if you don't want to follow their pre-written adventure, and it leaves things open for you to do. But it also gives you suggestions if you can't think of anything, and that's great. That's how these that's how these books should operate. That's what these books are for. They're to give you ideas if you can't think of anything. And yeah, uh, pre-written adventures are great, but I don't always like running pre-written adventures. I like running my own story, and I can't do that with Dragonlance because unless I read the other books or like the previous edition books or novels or stuff, I don't know anything about the setting except for recent history. Like I don't know any of the other towns or their, or, or the, or the nations or anything like that. It's, it's just kind of bare bones. And I'm sorry for going on this rant. And I know people are going to be <laughs> upset with me because they were looking forward to this. I was looking forward to this and that's what makes it hurt and why it's disappointing to me. Yeah, I guess I, I wonder if Wizard's answer would literally be, it's like, oh, well, if you want more of the dra- Dragonlance setting, there are literally tens and tens of books that you can go read and you can, you know, oh, you want to know more about the city? Cool. Go, <laughs> um, go read six I, I books. I know we haven't, that's <laughs> like, we haven't gotten an official setting book for Dragonlance since second edition. So like... It's basically the novels, which also went away for a long time. Like, they just came back. I I think uh, Dragons of Deception should be out by now. Yeah, like, some of that material is going to feel pretty dated. Yeah, and that's the thing is, like, that's great that they want to encourage you to read the old books. I'm totally fine with that. Go away, but that uh, go and do that. But that's not... That's not a good way to sell a setting book. It's like, here's just a little tease. Now go buy more books. Um, And also, it's just like, 
I want, I don't want to have to do that. If I want to run a setting, I want all the information there. And that's again, like I've seen them do this before. I know they can do this with Eberron. Eberron again is really good or wild mount. Take your pick. Wild mount is also a really good setting book because it gives you all of that information without you having to go and hunt for scraps of information. It's like, Oh, what is this city called? I guess I got to read 40 books to figure out where they mentioned this city. And so I can make it not inconsistent with the rest of the lore. That's a nightmare. Just give me the information. I I wonder, and I wish I had the numbers in front of me. Maybe it's something we'll go look up. And if it's super interesting, maybe we'll say something about it later. Like, bottom line, how many copies of Eberron did they sell? I'm not sure. I don't know if they published those numbers. I know it was a pretty popular one, though. Like, people really liked that book. People love it. And people who homebrew really, really love it. But if, you know, with the growth of the hobby, are there enough people who aren't doing that kind of homebrew who look at, you know, how many people picked up Eberron Reddit and said, I, I, I just give me an adventure. Like I want a longer <laughs> adventure. I want um, every time I've seen polls on like how many people run homebrew stories versus published adventures. It's always been exactly 50, 50. Yeah. And that's the thing is like, I'm not saying so there are solutions to that. You can make two books. You can make an adventure book for the people who just want the adventure and you can make the setting book for the people who want the setting. You make more money that way too, which no brainer. Or the other thing you could do, you don't even have to do that. You can do like what Regency Cthulhu did, which is pretty much 50-50 split of setting and mechanic information. Like it's pretty much almost evenly split um, of same mechanic information. And the other half is the adventure. Just make a longer book. And if Cthulhu can do this, I know Wizards of the Coast can, but instead it felt like 30% of the book was mechanics and setting information and 70% was this adventure. Which, uh, you know, it's putting a lot of, uh, first of all, that's putting a lot of eggs in one basket. If that adventure isn't great, then you get a spell jammer situation, which had a very underwhelming <laughs> adventure and a very underwhelming setting. The only thing that wasn't maybe over- underwhelming about spell jammer was the spell jammer ships themselves. Like those were cool, but people were disappointed because it felt like, oh, we have this one crater. I mean, it's one uh, asteroid that we can deal with that we have information about. And, it, and it's literally space. There's so much you can do with it. And instead, you're just focusing on the one city on the asteroid. People are going to be disappointed about that <laughs> because they especially when you hype it up as something that has been wa- requested since second edition, like this did not meet the mark. And I, I, I'm, I know that I, it sounds like I'm being mean, but I hold Wizards of the Coast to a higher standard because I know that they can do this and I want them to do better. Sorry to end on a downer note. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, Randall, you read this in the adventure a bit. What did you think from what you read? I I really liked the book. I, I, I guess my take on it was there's a lot of material out there. I can go get quick summaries, uh, you know. I can know anything I want to know about the Dragonlance setting pretty quickly with the internet, which didn't exist back in the 80s. Um, mm-hmm. I think the summary that you get in the source is probably for the average homebrewer as much as you're going to pick up. Mm-hmm. Uh, the problem, and I recognize this, is you're probably going to have to make up the cities. Uh, you're going to have to you know, figure out, okay, well, how are the people actually going to act? They're going to have to be influenced by the content you do get out of the adventure if you're trying to homebrew this. Um, and then, yeah, I think I think most parties are going to have a good time running through the adventure. And like I said, take what I say with a grain of salt. It's my opinion, my impassioned opinion. And it, I liked the parts of the adventure that I read. And it seems like a good adventure, and it seems like it's really interesting and plays with things that, you know, D&D has not played with before. 
So if you just came here for the adventure, pick it up. <laughs> All right. If you've enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcast and rate us on Spotify or your favorite podcast app. It's a quick, free way to support the podcast and helps us to reach new listeners. You'll find links in the show notes. You'll find affiliate links for Sourcebooks and other materials linked in the show notes, as well as on RPGBot.net. Following these links helps us to make this show happen every week. I looked through the list of monsters in the book. Not one dragon named Lance. I was extremely disappointed. I know, right? Dragon Lance. Literally unplayable. Dragon Philip.